0: Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here. As always, today my guest is Nicholas Bloom. We'll talk about that in just a second. But first, let's get to Ryan Recommends. And I'm going to make it a shameless plug today. Ryan Recommends, the business newsletter that I put out, RyanRaySenior.com slash 5Wide, RyanRaySenior.com slash 5Wide. If you're looking for ways to make money, to become an accredited investor, to expand your business, whatever it might be, This newsletter is for you, so I write it. I recommend it. There you go. Our sponsor is Bluehost. Thank you again for Bluehost. Um, Aroundmysenior.com slash hosting. Be sure to check them out to get your hosting. I use them for all of my domains, and you should too. If you do, send me a screenshot of the receipt using my promo code, and I'll be happy to give you publicity on this podcast. Our guest is Nicholas Bloom. We cover a lot of stuff. Nicholas is a professor of economics at Stanford. Smart chap, a lot smarter than me. Um, So I've tried to keep up, but (laughs) he, a very, very nice guy. Enjoyed the conversation. Covered all kinds of economic stuff. So I hope you do too. If you do, give us a thumbs up on YouTube. We're trying to grow our YouTube. Not a lot of presence there. Trying to grow YouTube. Consider subscribing. If you're a podcast listener, one of our many podcast listeners, thank you so much consider giving us a five-star rating interview. Without further ado, here's my interview with Nicholas Bloom. Nick, it is lovely to have you on the program today. How are you doing? Great. Hey, thanks very much for having me on. Okay, so you are a professor of economics. Um, you know, I have a little a little trap I run on LinkedIn. I'll have these, um, these financial advisors will email me. They'll say, hey, we want to invest your money. And I always ask them, what school of economics do you subscribe to? And most of them are like, what are you talking about? And I didn't realize how many people don't realize that there's a lot of schools of economic thought in theory. Um, so I talk to economists um, I am not an economist, um, but I like to hear what they think, what schools they'd like to subscribe to, what weight they give them. And so let's just start there real quick. And I want to get into some of your research
1: afterwards. So how would you describe yourself as an economist? Um, I'm reasonably free market. So look, I, you know, maybe that's my background. You know, I grew up in the UK under the Thatcher era. I actually worked in McKinsey, the consulting firm. I generally think markets work. I mean, I moved to America. Right? You know, I'm I i I've, uh, I'm an immigrant. I'm yeah. now a US citizen. You know, if, for people to come to America and stay in America, you have to believe in capitalism and the free market. So, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm entirely against government. Government definitely is important to regulate markets. Sometimes, otherwise, you get monopolies and, you know, pollution. Uh during the pandemic, it was useful to stimulate, to kind of drag us out. But broadly speaking, markets generally do a great job. And I'm, you know, America, America is the richest large country in the world. It's also one of the most capitalists, and that is definitely no coincidence.
0: Yeah. I always kind of joke that I'm somewhere between Chicago and Austria I don't really know where, I don't know enough to actually say, but that's kind of where, where I put myself on this, on the spectrum, if you will. Okay. You obviously have a lot of research coming out, a lot of interesting things that you're studying. Um, and so let's first talk about this topic of working from home. Um, this was a big discussion point, like March, April, May of last year, you know, this, all this new normal talk, the big cities were emptying out. Um, Is that what led you to research this topic? And then what did your what what maybe were you surprised um, through the process of researching working from home?
1: No. okay, so that's a great question. The answer is no. Weirdly enough, I'm probably like just about the only economist that has been working and working from home for a very long time. So I actually wrote my first paper on it in 2004, so almost 20 years ago. And I've been working on I ran randomized control trials and surveys, honestly, back in the late 2000s, 2010 to 12. So mostly it was a really boring topic. Nobody cared about it. There was a brief flutter in 2013 when Marissa Mayer banned working from home in Yahoo. And then as you can imagine, in March 2020, it just went insane. And since March 2020, I have been running two big surveys, collecting a lot of data, but talking to probably maybe one or two organizations a day so by now, I mean, and these are mostly corporates, but you know, multiple schools, hospitals, city councils, the judiciary, the World Bank, lots of civil services, university, I mean, all kinds, just every which way, to give them advice and you know, to hear back from them about how working from home works. I'm very happy to talk about it. But it's a combination of a lot of data, but also very practical experience of talking to you know organizations and managers. So going back to 2004.
0: Um, we're in the internet era, but the internet is not like it is today, right? So high-speed internet is not available at home. The computers aren't as great. I imagine that alone would allow us to be able to work at home more regularly because I'm thinking about you know, if you have some heavy computer, um, comput- you, you, you need a computer to compute you know, your whatever it is you're doing, you can't do that at home. You're back into that for Your computers, your internet speed, um, now people work on the cloud. Has technology alone been the biggest driver of people being, being able to work from home?
1: Yeah, it's massive, a massive change. So I, you know, I can give you two previous eras. So, uh, you know, one previous era is going back to the 80s. If you talk to people that work from home in the the 80s, you know, it was terrible. It was basically, they'd say, look, the boss would drop or you'd have to go get piles of paper. No one had home computers. You know, you'd phone people at that, you know, that was a lot of driving and shuffling paper and it really was pretty low level jobs and not, you know, mostly and not great. If you roll it forwards 20 years, to when i started working on working from home in the kind of 2005 even 2010 there's been two big advances even over that so the first is video calls uh skype came out in 2003 but it wasn't really widespread and zoom wasn't founded until i think 2011 or 12 so I, you know, I used to do a lot of stuff at home and it was phoning people up you get on these conference calls and the other thing was the cloud and dropbox so if you wanted to share documents you wanted to share a presentation or a, you know, a, a, a word doc, you had to email it. And it was a real pain. And then the thing got too big, your email will crash. Whereas now we just file share very straightforwardly. So even versus 10 years ago, working from home is dramatically better. And On your point, one of the things I've seen in the data, we look at every application to the US Patent and Trademark Office, so new patents. And what we see is after March, 2020, the number of new patents in America that talked about remote work or working from home Doubled and is climbing sharply so the other thing is the future of working from home looks pretty fantastic just because all of the companies you've heard of i don't know google you know zoom facebook microsoft are throwing tons of money at this thing and it's going to get a lot better so virtual reality and star wars holograms or you know start <laughs> this kind of stuff is not going to be next year but it's it's going to dramatically improve so five from ten years from now working from home will be a lot better than it is now
0: so one of the things, if you're a manager or a CEO, you're listening right now, you have to be concerned about security, right? Yeah. If you're at your office, you can kind of put the firewalls up, the server, you can kind of monitor stuff. But the further they get, um, the less secure things, at least perception is. Is that really true? Have you found that companies are um, can um, increase security as people work from home?
1: Well, security is a big challenge, actually, with working from home. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine on the weekend, who is saying one of the things he works with a lot of firms on the tech side and saying one of the things he notices is with the work from home era, companies are spending relatively a smaller share of their money on hardware at the office mm. and a lot more on cloud A and B security for folks working remotely. So working remotely is a bit of a nightmare because you have people you know logging in with A from home, but B on a lot of different devices. So you've got all these devices floating around, and so companies, unfortunately, just need to spend more money on that. There needs to be more training. I don't think that's a huge amount. It's not like that's you know twenty percent of revenue, but you know, and it comes with some mitigating factors, which is basically you probably need to spend less stuff on the office because people are just going to spend less days in the office. So you know, you don't need as heavy duty you know networks because there just isn't as much stuff compared to what it would have been beforehand running down there.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I've theorized about is. As people work from home, um, uh, we can talk about labor law in a second. But this idea that a lot of the forty-hour-a-week employees probably were there um, because that's just kind of how the, the law was written. You have forty hours, to get insurance, you have all this stuff. Uh, working from home um, might expose some of that that you don't need employees for forty hours uh, because they're just they get their work done quite you know a lot faster. Um, have you found that people working from home are? More effective, less effective, the same effective. Uh, I guess some employees might might drag their workout just to make sure that, that it looks like they're the same amount of effectiveness.
1: Well, okay, so um, I got into this. You know, I got a lot of coverage for for an experiment I did ten years ago, and we're actually repeating in a broader sense. So I'll tell you about that, and then I'll tell you about some more recent stuff. So. 10 years ago, we took a massive multinational trip.com. They're the world's second largest by market value travel agent after booking.com. And they have, what, 15,000 employees. They're huge. And they decided to take two divisions. And they asked everyone in those two divisions, who wants to work from home four out of five days a week? The people that are basically taking calls, making bookings, talking to customers. And a whole bunch of volunteers stepped forward. And then they did something maybe unusual, which is they set it up as a randomized control trial. So actually, the CEO drew a ball, a ping pong ball out of an urn, and it said, uh, even. So folks, with an even birthday, if you're born on the second, fourth, sixth, eighth, tenth of the month, got to work from home for nine months. And folks that said, odd, like me, I'm the fifth of May, didn't. And then they just tracked these people, you know, actually over the next two years. So very scientific, you know, very rigorous study. They were expecting that folks working from home would goof off. So their thought was, look, we'll save on space. We'll get these people out of the office. We're going to save them a bit of space. But we're going to lose on productivity because they're going to, you know, the great, the joke about the three great enemies of working from home is the television, the bed and the refrigerator. What they found, and I'll pause after that, what they found, they were amazed by, and I was amazed by, which is the productivity of people working from home was up by 13%, which is massive. That is a massive increase. That's almost an extra day a week. So, you know, in that study, and I'm happy to talk about the details, but people working from home are dramatically actually more productive than those in the office.
0: Well, I think, you know, when you talk to economists, one of the things that that, that that fascinate me about the way y'all's brains work is you track all of the implications and, and how it works itself out. I would imagine that, you know, if you've worked in an office, there's always the person who walks around and spends like a half their day talking <laughs> to everyone else. <laughs> right. And so if you cut that person out, <laughs> then everyone else, their, their productivity theoretically is going to be more effective. There's the coffee breaks. You don't need a coffee break because it's a little bit more relaxed. <laughs> I imagine like all those things, they just add up. There's probably less time wasted on meetings. I- I'm guessing. I'm curious. Was that what they found or what was it?
1: The- no, totally. So let- let's go through the numbers. This is great. You're right. Economists, you know, love data. So uh, from home, employees are 13% more productive. Just to be clear. And then, I talk, you know, these are folks making phone calls, answering phone calls, doing data entry. They're not you know, senior managers, but we it means we can manage, we can measure very tightly what they do. So 4% of that 13% was because they're more productive per minute. And this is exactly as you said, it, it's, it's damn noisy in the office. And, you know, they told me all kinds of stories. People would say, I mean, I remember my favorite was this person that said, you know, the person at the desk next to me in the office, they cut their toenails under the desk with this massive toenail clipper. And they said it's disgusting it's like horrible every time they do that i have to go take a walk because it's so horrible i can hear that you know or there's but shouting or people arguing or bursting into tears or you know the the dwight shrew of the office that's going around you know <laughs> so four percent is it's just on average quieter at home i understand maybe not during the pandemic when kids are around but sure. you know post-pandemic it's quieter then the other nine percent is because actually people work more minutes at home and you looked into the data and you discovered, lo and behold, they took slightly less sick days because whenever they took a sick but they weren't actually always sick. Sometimes they needed to let the cable guy in or something. Yeah. Uh, they were more like to start and stop punctually because there were no, you know, car breakdown delays or traffic. They took, as you said, shorter coffee breaks, shorter toilet. I mean, the toilet at home is in the room next door normally rather than walk there. And the guy that grabs you to ask about the NFL on the way, you know, so you see that and we've you know to update you we've run surveys on five thousand Americans month in month out since the pandemic started and asked them about their productivity at home on an average now people across every occupation and education etc those that are working from home on average say they're about four to five percent more productive so you know there's an enormous amount of data out there but i'd say the bottom line is the average person is actually more productive at least in the short run working from home than being in the office and i think it's a combination of as you said it's a bit quieter at home and you actually tend to work more minutes because there's less you know breaks and long lunches
0: yeah you mentioned the sickness thing and the thing i was struck by is you're right people will fake sick days but they're probably getting less sick because they're not around as many sick people right and so they're just not exposed to as many sicknesses and so therefore
1: they're going to be less sick right Totally. And in fact, here's another policy when I advise companies um, is to have a second thing, maybe called a home day. So it's not a sick day. It's kind of related to a sick day. But the idea is you say to your team or your boss, hey, look, either I got to be in to let the cable repair guy in or I'm not feeling great, but I'm going to stay at home. I'm just going to work from home for the day. Uh, But, you know, I I need to be here. I don't think it's good to come in now. The upside of that is you can still probably do most stuff. You're probably doing 80, 90 percent of what you would have done in the office anyway. And you don't risk infecting others. So enabling, enabling people to work from home not only means you are less likely to get sick off others, but people who are feeling a kind of, you know, not great in the morning are less likely to come in because they have that flexibility. Before the pandemic, if you aren't feeling great, you've got a horrible choice. You take a full sick day and you miss out on whatever or you go in. Now you can take a home day. And say, oh, you know, I'm going to join most meetings remotely. I get that it's not ideal, but I, you know, it's not nearly as bad as it was before. So
0: at the company I, I used to own and sold, um, we went to the 980 schedule, so every other Friday off. And once we did that, what we found was, so for those listening, you change the way your payroll schedule works on Friday. So Friday, the first half of Friday. Uh, counts towards one week and the second half counts the next week until the next Friday they get off. Um, and what we found was that Thursday before the Friday off, the amount of productivity went through the roof. People were in there and they were churning. If they had to stay an hour late, it didn't matter. Like it, it was really weird uh, because they wanted that Friday off. But the other thing was they started scheduling so much of their life on that Friday off, right? And it was a payday for them too. So, you know, they could pay their bills, they could go you know, run their errands, they could let the cable guy in. And so that was kind of, we didn't do work from home, but we did that. And that really changed the employee behavior in a a way that we didn't expect. And the other thing that happened was we would joke about, "Ah, let's go back to the old schedule. And they're like, no, we'll do whatever. We don't want to go back to that because you kind of get in this routine and you just forget about how much of your life is ruled by work. And so you get a little bit of freedom. It changes employee behavior
1: in ways that you wouldn't expect, or at least we didn't. You know, that's a great point. I've been advising this in a slightly related way. So an issue that comes up a lot when you talk to companies is this. About half of Americans can work from home. Maybe many of your listeners, they tend to be university educated. They tend to be a bit higher earning. You know, they're managers, professionals, you can guess. But the other half of Americans can't. They're like frontline manufacturing, retail, a lot of education, a lot of healthcare workers, etc. So the second group, have had a you know a pretty horrible pandemic. They've had to come in or they've lost their jobs. The first group, those of us like me that come work from home, I can't say it's great, but it's definitely been a lot easier. So suddenly now we're telling those that come up from home, you know what, you're gonna get a really nice perk after the pandemic. You're gonna get hybrid work. That's fantastic, and they really like it. The other group, they're not getting anything. And a lot of them, and I hear from managers, are basically really pissed off. They are saying, you know, we've suffered in the pandemic. Some of us got sick. We've got to come in. And now you're telling us we're not going to get to work from home and the better paid managers are. And so one of the solutions is to maybe have a, you know, an annual bonus for those that can't work from home, let's say 5% of salary. But the other thing is to give them flexibility in other ways. And the 9-8 schedule is one good example. In fact, I've heard firms mention that, is to say, look, if you've got to come in every day, you're more likely, say, if you're on an hourly schedule, We just, rather than work eight hours a day, you work nine hours for a bunch of days then have a day off and think about, you know, let them work Saturday, Sundays and take, you know, long weekends. something that at least gives them some extra flexibility that doesn't make it seem so unfair related to, you know, management that gets to work from home.
0: Yeah. And what we did was we, we bumped it 15 minutes early in in the morning, shortened lunch by 15 minutes and then 30 minutes at the end of the day, I think is how we did it so that, it wasn't like an hour in the beginning or hour. You to try to spread it out um, so it didn't feel like you're working that full hour, at least. Um, that's what that we found got to work. Okay. People working, working from home, though, has other implications, right? So if you're working from home, now you're in the box all the time. <laughs> you might get claustrophobic. Or you might realize, hey, I was you know, living downtown, and I don't have to live downtown now. And so I think you guys, I think the, the donut effect, is that the proper term for this?
1: Yeah, that's what we called it, you know. I don't want to make anyone feel too hungry, but <laughs> so we've
0: we've heard about people looking to 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 move outside of the big cities into the the, the suburbia.
1: Um, what
0: have you guys found?
1: So I tell you what, we've used two sources of data and they tell the same story. Actually, three. So one is Zillow price data by zip codes, fantastic. Second is the United States Postal Service. Uh, they have change of address data by zip codes. Again, it's great. And the third is actually we've been talking to a lot of property companies. I actually spoke to a real, uh, real estate investment trust yesterday for about an hour. So all three said the same thing in American cities, in large American cities. So think San Francisco, New York, Chicago, L.A., Phoenix, Atlanta. We are seeing pretty heavy movement out of the city center during the pandemic of both individuals and businesses on average across the 12 largest U.S. cities. About 15% of people left during the pandemic and about 15% of businesses left. And none, neither of them have come back. So there's been a big drop. The outflow has stopped, but it hasn't returned yet. And you know, maybe Delta has put that thing off. Um, what's that done for the property market? It has meant that property market so the donut effect is that these folks have left the center they move out to the suburbs and the ra- the reason is very you know immediate that look if I'm going to work from home post-pandemic say three days or two days a week I don't care quite as much about how long I commute but I do really want that room at home to work so I want to move further out where space place is a bit cheap and I can get a home- room at home and I'm you know I don't I'm not so bothered about commuting maybe for an hour and a half say. and what we see is this donut effect city center's particularly residential properties done, really horrible residential rents are down out in the suburbs. And in fact, out even in the suburbs of, you know, small, slightly smaller cities, like second tier cities, ones that are like Kansas City. I mean, that's a pretty massive city, but it's not in the top 12 in the US, Columbus, I Ohio, the, even these cities, if you look at the suburbs, they've done pretty well. So if you own properties say outside of New York, Chicago, Atlanta, in the suburbs, you've done fantastically well lesser than the city center. Same appears to be true for commercial property. A big question, if anyone's owning property, is what do we see in the future? I think there'll be some return, but not complete. So city centers are going to bounce back a bit, They're gonna, but they're not going to fully bounce back. Now, what does fully bounce back? I should note that city centers have been on an upswing for the last 40 years. So if you look at New York in 1980, the city center was like terrifying and you know, crime ridden and property was you know almost free just about. It was like vacant housing and stuff. You know, you go back to 2019, 40 years later, it's one of the most expensive places in the world. What the pandemic has done is unwound about 10 years of city centre growth. Some of it will come back, but not entirely. So post-pandemic, it may look like 2010. City centers are pretty damn expensive, but not quite as crushingly as expensive as they were in 2019. And the suburbs are relatively now cost a bit more.
0: Okay. So the the old adage goes the best cure for high prices is high prices and low prices is low prices so I, i'm hearing you say all this but i'm like well if the rent drops enough shouldn't that bring back people or do you think that there's um that this change is
1: more permanent because of all the other factors involved yeah it's it look so no city center building is going to be vacant go back to 2010 there's no buildings in San Francisco and New York or Chicago, or Atlanta, in the center of cities that were vacant. The rents were just a little bit lower. Yeah. So what's happening is a lot of particularly young professionals uh, and, you know, middle-aged folks with kids are saying, why do I, you know, I don't want to live half an hour from the center of this big city. Because it's, you know, I have kids to, you know, maybe there's not enough space. I want a yard or I want my own room to work at home, a home office. If I'm only going in two, three days a week, I'm happy to drive and commute a bit more. And in fact, the congestion is less on the roads. I mean, anyone, anyone that's driven, you know, in the last 15 months has been a joy. There's far less traffic. So actually, I think this is a great thing. The only people that are losing out is if you owned an apartment in the center of a city before the pandemic, you've not done so well. Those prices are about flat. The rest of the U.S. property market has gone up, so it's not like you've lost. You just haven't made out as well. If you owned a house out in the suburbs, you've done fantastically well. In fact, even if you rent in the city center, you've done well because rents are down and they're never probably going to return. So, personally, I think it's good. I mean, if you remember back to 2019, I mean, I live out in San Fran. I don't live in San Francisco. I live in the Bay Area, California. But there was all this complaint about the affordability crisis, and it's a real thing. It was, you know, if you're a policeman or a nurse. Or a far fight, you couldn't afford to live in San Francisco anymore. I'm not saying it's cheap now, it's still expensive, but it's cheaper at least. And that is that's definitely a good thing, okay? So,
0: when you move out, so let's just I'm close to Dallas, Fort Worth. So, let's say you move out from Dallas, Fort Worth to Binbrook or Weatherford, some surrounding area, okay? Um, will those prices then go up? So, would you see people? Have a two tier move, so they go even further out, exactly right. Okay, so,
1: how, yeah, how- Dallas is one of our top 12 cities. You're exactly right. So, in fact, we've been looking at the amazing thing about the US Postal Service data as you got is you can see individual moves, and it's very clear there's kind of what I call a waterfall effect. So, take Dallas, folks in the city center have moved out to kind of the mid suburbs, folks in the mid suburbs have tended to move out to the outer suburbs. You know, those in the outer suburbs have actually some of them moved out to like what we'll call the exurbs or, you know, second, smaller, third tier cities, smaller cities, smaller towns, maybe you'd even call them. So very much. And everyone's had the same thought. Look, if I don't need to be in five days a week, I only need to be in two, three days a week. uh, But I want a home office. Why not? It makes total sense. So, yes, the suburbs have become relatively more expensive. And in fact, the hottest property markets in the U.S., have most have actually been the suburbs around the bet San francisco because tech has done really well uh but the techies are no longer living in the city center a lot of them have moved out and so you know these these prices have gone insane like you know they've doubled some of these areas so what kind of strain
0: though does that put on the on the workers on the economy because if you're if you're paying for high prices um you know you have to keep that standard of living up you know it's you can't you can't put a reduction in size. So when you think about employees, if they if they move out, they pay more, then they have less potential money coming in. Does that put a strain going back to working from home? Their effectiveness. Do y'all measure anything like that? Is there a way to measure that? Well, no,
1: no, no, just so just to be clear, what's happening is, imagine you used to live in the mid-suburb, commute in every day, five days a week. Mm-hmm. It's true, prices. If you didn't, if you owned, you're in good shape, right? Because you own your house and you've gained. If, on the other hand, you're renting or you're a young person about to buy, that's where it gets a bit harder. What we're seeing in the data is those folks have moved out to outer suburbs. So, you know, there's a trade-off here. They are probably getting more for them. You know, the outer suburbs so much cheaper, even though the prices are up, they're probably getting more for their money. And it's true they have to commute now from the outer rather than the mid-suburb. But they've only got to commute three days a week. So net net most people look like they're up again the one group that's lost is probably big investors in city center property and you know not everyone's going to win all the time but these groups there's not a lot of them and they tend to be pretty wealthy individuals so generally i, I don't want anyone to do badly but sure. generally i do care a lot that essential service workers so think about a farmer or you know a policeman or a nurse or someone in the center of a big city they can't work from home. Mm-hmm. They cannot commute in. So they have to live in the center. So in some senses, it is good those prices are dropped because people that desperately need to live in the city center because they can't work from home, they at least are going to find that easier and more affordable. Okay. And
0: so historically speaking, why would you, what is your thesis on why people move to the big city? Um, Is it industrial revolution driven? Is it is it jobs? Do you have a thesis on that? Because that's one of the things that I've heard different people talk about why we live in these big cities, um, historically speaking. But if we're going to undo that uh, because we
1: work from home, um, what, what 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 got us in the spot? Uh, you know, there's a huge literature. You know, I, I guess I, at least one. I mean, many, many people have worked on this. Many, you know, Richard Florida, Ed Glazer, Enrico Moretas, a lot of economists have looked at this and, you know, many non-economists. Um a big factor seems to be that knowledge jobs, which have increasingly dominated the economy, tech, finance, business services, oddly enough, it seems like they work well when you're in close proximity. So you might think, look, if I worked in, I don't know, Google or Deutsche Bank or whatever, I could just do all my stuff on the internet and I could live out in Mississippi, or, you know, in Alaska. Turns out that's not really that true. At least pre-pandemic, for sure, people wanted to come in every day, and they wanted to come in five days a week <laughs> and work pretty long hours. And if you do that, you've got to be in the city centre. At the same time, city centres crime rates fell. It's partly demographics. If you look, a lot of crime tends to be committed by young men, and you know Americans are aging, so they're less just yes, less young men. Unemployment rates are down. You know, unemployed young men are the you know the the biggest problem for crime. So crime rates are down, city centres are safer. A lot of restaurant shops sprung up. It's nicer to live in it. So a group of factors. I don't think you know. Again, I don't think this is a bad thing. I think it's good to be a bit more balanced. One of the things that was the real problem for America in 2019 is how polarised society was because we had these super rich city centres uh, where there was tons of money and growth, and then out and the, you know the very rural areas they are really getting left behind and the pandemic, by pushing working from home, has actually helped to rebalance that quite a lot because you know high paid jobs are moving much further out from city centres. And if you're fully remote, you can live anywhere. And a lot of fully remote people are moving out to rural areas, which are lovely places to live. Pre-pandemic, were hard to, to earn an income from, but that's no longer so true anymore. You
0: no, know, I think that's a great point, which is, um, you know, if you can live, if you can work remotely, then you can live in more of an environment, maybe that you're. Um, religious beliefs or philosophical beliefs or voting beliefs uh, represent whereas if you're in a big city you're just kind of stuck with uh, a, a quagmire of all kinds of all kinds of people some you agree with some you don't and that does cause uh, tensions especially in yep. a, a heightened situation and so I think you're you're on you're definitely on to on to something there um, that's why you're the economist you, you're on all this stuff <laughs> <laughs> okay all right one final topic I wanted to chat with you about is um, you guys have a paper from uh, July of 2020, "Trapped Factors and China's Impact on Global Growth." Okay, so China is obviously a hot button issue. It feels like um, daily. Um, I, you know, personally, I, I don't understand why we can't try to have a nuanced, balanced conversation about the chi- about the China, China's role in the, in the world. But, um, anyways, so what was the con- what was the, the genesis of the, of the study, and what were your conclusions?
1: Okay, so I'll I, I start from the beginning and tell you my take on China. So, you know, economists have kind of come to a similar view that China joined the World Trade Organization in 2002. I mean, that is now a long time ago. That's 20 years ago. When it joined that, a lot of tariffs and quotas on trade, particularly the U.S., disappeared. And So there's an explosion of Chinese exports, particularly manufactured goods to the U.S., and that did lead to a loss of probably three to six million manufacturing jobs in the U.S. is kind of the estimates. At the same time, uh, there's a lot of stuff that we exported to China, but they tended to be more service sector jobs. I mean, a lot of students are Chinese, and that is an export. Americans are selling the Chinese education. They're selling them software. They sell them iPhones, etc. The tricky thing is the jobs that were lost are in the manufacturing heartlands. The jobs that were gained tended to be service sector tech jobs often on the coast. So there is real pain and there is a real issue there. Um, our paper is focused, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but our paper is focused on another factor, which is China's increase in trade did seem to increase innovation. And the reason is U.S. companies faced with a rise in Chinese trade kind of had to innovate or die. And so what we see is a lot of, you know, a lot more patenting, a big increase in r and D. A A lot of these goods were not made in the U.S., though. So take Apple. Apple actually has been very innovative, has tons of patents, made an enormous amount of money and actually paid a lot of it out to American pension funds, et cetera. So America's done very well out of Apple. But the stuff is innovated in America, but you know mostly it's made in China. So there is a complicated picture of pros and cons. The thing that politically is interesting is mo- almost all of this is in the rear window. So that happened mostly from 2002 to about 2015. The last five to 10 years, There isn't, you know, nearly this growth of Chinese trade. So, in some ways, if you wanted to have a trade war with China, it would have made sense. If you, you know, I'm not pushing this, but if you were going to do that, it would be 2002 to 2010. Having a trade war with China in 20, you know, 18 is like, you know, closing the stable door after the horse has bolted. It's not just bolted; it's you know, 15 fields from here. So, yeah, I totally think you might want to close the stable door while the horse was in the stable. But by now, I mean, as a fact, Chinese manufacturing is actually employment is shrinking. China's developing into you know a European style or U.S. style economy. It's growing in services. So, there are definitely Chinese policies are pursue, but beating up on the manufacturing exports made sense twenty years ago. Now it's you know it's it's kind of a pretty historic topic. So, how much do you attribute um,
0: U.S. minimum wage laws, taxes for the offshoring of jobs to China? Because to me. That's kind of the, the um, you know, when when Trump uh, w- was running, you know, it, it felt like his message was a little bit different. But the message for politicians has been, well, we're sending these jobs overseas. We're sending these jobs overseas. It's like, well, right, their their, their their labor is far cheaper than ours. So unless you want to pay more for the goods, it's kind of hard to, to justify um, keeping the jobs here. I'm not saying whether we should or shouldn't, just dollars and cents wise. It felt like that was a big driver for, for driving,
1: the, uh, for pushing the jobs overseas. I mean, the big driver and the data for pushing the jobs over well, is for destroying manufacturing jobs is automation. So if you look in the data, it's clear that most American jobs in manufacturing are lost because we've just automated production processes. To, to, as a fact, jobs in manufacturing in China have been declining for about 10 years. So it's not like Chinese manufacturing is doing particularly great either. Jobs and manufacturing are declining pretty much everywhere because of automation. So, you know, technology is now, you know, is making it easier to make more from less. So the question is what, I totally see there's a problem, what to do about folks that have manufacturing jobs. So uh, I'm not a big fan of minimum wage laws, actually. My, you know, my support will be uh, taking parts of the country that are struggling and investing in terms of putting actually, you know, educate money into education, money into universities, money into keeping corporate tax rates very low, Income tax rates low. If you want to, if you take, take the Bay Area. So where I live, 150 years ago, this was a nothing. I mean, there's just nothing out here. It was a bunch of, you know, dry fields. And Leyland Stanford, who made money off the railroad, set up a big university called Stanford University, which was first basically to World War II itself was not much, to be honest. And then from the 50s and 60s onwards, Stanford University got a lot of money from the federal government to do research uh, on military research, grew big, and a lot of those ideas spun off into Silicon Valley and created a huge number of jobs. And so the thought would be, let's create more places like that across the U.S. I mean, take the Appalachians. It would be great if the you know government would invest money into a lot more research and universities, and that that creates long-run jobs, good jobs as well that stick around. So okay, let's take
0: your point about automation. If I'm following you, you're suggesting then potentially that. Countries, I'll, I'll just pick some out of random, maybe like a Honduras or Nicaragua or someone very much on the lower end of the emerging market. Um, their ability to bring in manufacturing jobs is going to be less because they are already automated. How would how are these countries going to, you know, move to a, a closer to a first world standard if they
1: can't get those baseline jobs imported to their country? So a lot of these countries are, you know, Mexico, again, I have a lot of data on, they are not seeing a particular growth in manufacturing employment as, again, service sector growth. If you look at countries, take the US. So the US, its peak number of manufacturing jobs happened, I think, in the 1950s. So, you know, the US has been losing manufacturing jobs for the last 70 years. And the reason is this natural process of, you know, of uh, economic growth, the manufacturing, actually, this is what's called the Baumol called it the Baumol disease. The manufacturing sector has very fast productivity growth. Think of some of the greatest innovations like Henry Ford's, you know, production line or mass production or lean manufacturing. They tend to make manufacturing companies really efficient. If you've ever visited manufacturing companies in America, you don't see many people in the factories Mm -hmm. because people are expensive and, you know, equipment and computers are relatively cheap. So that's been going on for a long, long time. Uh. There are some jobs that are so low wage. You know, if you go to, let's say, I'm trying to think, Ethiopia. So, look, if you can pay people $2 a day, they can outcompete a machine. But we're never going to, those jobs are not coming back to America. No one in America is trying to compete with a, you know, riveting machine by doing it cheaper by hand. I've been out in India and I see, i visited factories whereby they say, this worker costs $4 a day. Once they go above $6, we are getting a machine to do it. That's a pretty, you know, it's not a great job, put it that way. So, um it just turns out that the future of employment growth in the U.S. is around more educated, higher quality jobs research. So there is a real issue. Um, by the way, COVID and the pandemic is going to generate a different issue, which is service sector offshoring. So a lot of companies I talk to are saying, you know, I figured out that our team has been remote for the last you know, 15 months. And I'm not sure we ever need that team back on site. In fact, I'm not sure we ever need that team in our company. I'm wondering about offshoring that whole job, mm. you know, the whole team to Mexico or because the time zone or Canada or Europe or India or something. So right now, actually, the big risk I worry about is offshoring service sector jobs. Um, and, you know, again, I think the most important solution to that is, you know, to make the business environment in America appealing. You want to, you know, cut, make regulations light Keep business taxes down, but also educate workers so businesses want to create keep these jobs in the U.S. It's very hard, you can't force a business to keep a job in the U.S., it doesn't work. I mean, we're not the Soviet Union, you have to make them want to keep the jobs here, and so you know, education and training is part of that. No, no, yeah, yeah, so, so we're in
0: agreement on all of that, I think. I guess my question is, um. These emerging markets that might have been looking for manufacturing jobs to come to their country—if you're saying that the difference between four dollars a day and six dollars a day is a, is a robot—how um, will those countries employ their workforce? Because if the if, if the automation is getting that cheap, um, what are they going to do? Because if we can't
1: short to their no exactly, so developing country there is a natural path of development whereby you know if you go back thousands of years, we all used to be in agriculture, right? So if you look at America, I think 150 years ago, 80% of people work in agriculture, we then shift from agriculture to factories, to service sector. And that is a very natural path. The whole of Europe's done that. America, Japan, South Korea, et cetera. So these other countries are going through this. So take something like Mexico. Mexico has a much larger share of manufacturing employment than America, but even there it's shrinking, it has more agricultural employment than America, but it's shrinking and it's growing into service sector. And much like us, much like Americans, they need to invest in, you know, I mean, look, the current Mexican, uh, I'm not a fan of the current Mexican political setup. You know, they have very many problems, but, you know, my advice would be, look, cut taxes, keep regulation low, try and support business, you know, push on education, much the same as the US. Um, If you are super low wage, sure, you can compete on, you know, sweatshop manufacturing jobs in the short, and that might be great. If you're Ethiopia, It may be better to have people working in sweatshops than on the fields, but that's not great for a lot. In the long run, you want to move beyond that.
0: Yeah, right. It's an interesting problem because if you look at like energy technology um, or cell phone technology or some of the stuff that the U.S. went through in the 50s and the 60s and whatnot, um, those emerging markets now have the ability to kind of jump past what we had to slog through. Um, But when you think about jobs, that might not necessarily be uh, good because the slog through it in that way was um
1: was kind of good to build up a worker base potentially i don't know um, no you look, right there's a fascinating question that c- kicks around uh in economics which is you know and in the popular press which is kind of where are these new jobs going to come mm-hmm. and you know the old jobs keep getting destroyed by technology and, you know, there's an amazing anecdote about piano manufacturers 100 years ago. So it used to be every American had a piano in their home because people would learn to play their piano and entertain themselves. And the radio came along. And guess what? No one really wanted pianos anymore. So the whole piano industry collapsed. And there's a study. And all, most of these workers managed to move on to do something else, including making cars. But, yes, you know, there's a question. Well, eventually we run out of new things to do. So far, thankfully, we haven't. And partly is the, you know, in America, is the ingenuity of business people that, they come up with new products who would have thought, you know, we all need personal. I mean, I don't have a personal trainer, but a lot of people do, you well, know, a lot of services. Who would have thought we need to drink so many cups of coffee from Starbucks. Turns out we <laughs> like it. So, you know, as long as you let business people get on with their jobs, come up with new ideas, they come up with new products. We'll be happy to buy. And, you know, the, the kind of job cycle keeps going.
0: Absolutely. You know, I do tell people, um, cause I have some friends. They're like, Oh man, the manufacturing jobs are gone. I'm like, "Yeah, that's part of it. But then I say, well, think about this. 20 years ago, if you said that you developed an app that goes on cell phones, people would have been like, What an app that goes yeah. on cell phones? What are you talking about? You know, and so, um, I don't know when the iPhone came out, but you know, it's 20 something years ago, a little less, but anyways, um, but now I'm looking at my phone now and I've got all kinds of apps that do all kinds of things, more functionality, and so that's that's a new job that wasn't there. Um, another the thing I've, I've thought about is like this microphone, the microphone sales in the U.S. has to be at all time high, right? Because right. back in like you know 1990 you didn't really buy microphones unless you had a karaoke machine and now everyone's got a podcast or a home studio and so there's all kinds of things like that that I think are um, that are interesting and fascinating and so we will we we will see where it ends. Okay. All right. I want to be respectful of your time. So what new work do you guys have coming up that people can follow along and where should they follow
1: along at? I mean, I think the hot topic right now is around the future of work from home. And so I have a website called it's www wfh as in work from home research.com so wfh research.com and we've been putting out a lot of policy pieces advice for managers media things on working from home i mean my advice for anyone that has that is runs their own firm is probably go to hybrid so post pandemic, for you know just to step back there are half the workers can't work from home so for those you know it's tricky for those that are currently working from home post pandemic hybrid you know a three two plan keep collecting data uh you know tell people this is the short run solution we don't know where we're end up we're going to try hybrid out and evaluate it and also try and make sure everyone comes in on the same three days at least within individual teams and works from home on the same two three days so it's kind of important one of the learnings from working from home is if people come into the office it doesn't work unless it's organized it's pretty it's no use i will you know and I work with you and three others. You come in Monday. I come in Tuesday. They come in Wednesday. We're all on Zoom anyway in the office. I mean, what's the point? So, right. you want some centralization. Basically, team managers have to set the pace. That's
0: an interesting observation because I wouldn't have thought about that. I'd have said, well, you know, just you know, if you're working from home, pick your days and come in. But you're saying, no, no, no. Once you do the hybrid, when people come back in, they need to be um, organized and come in at the same time.
1: So- totally. There's too much choice. I've been arguing against too much choice on this. So. One is you need people to coordinate the days to come in. You actually also need firms to take a stand and make sure that people work from home on the days they're supposed to, because otherwise the system unravels. So, you know, let me give you the example. Take Apple. Apple's announced you're going to work from you're going to be in the office Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. You're going to work from home Wednesday, Friday. Now, imagine it does that. Now, imagine Tim Cook is a little bit ill disciplined, the CEO of Apple, and comes in on Wednesday, Friday what do you think happens next? Like everyone reporting to Tim Cook saying, hey, if I want to get promoted, I got to come in Wednesday, Friday. Everyone reporting to everyone reporting that, you know, the whole thing collapses until you find that either you got to come in five days a week or basically you're not going to get promoted. So it's important that CEOs lead on this and that firms are kind of tough on saying, you do have to come in on the two or three days we want you in. But importantly, you should be at home on those other two days to stop backsliding. I mean, you can imagine, you know, the uh, Dwight out of the office starts to come in every day, hoping to co- cozy up to you know, Michael Scott. Everyone else feels, hey, wait, Dwight will get the promotion. I better come in too. And so the thing kind of collapses. So it's important to A, define the three days you're in, but B, define that you're actually at home on the other days.
0: There is a great office episode about that where uh, Dwight gets confused that he thinks uh, today is Friday and and all that he he comes <laughs> late the next day so <laughs> it, remind, it reminded me that I, I appreciate a good office reference as uh that's a fantastic show so okay we will link to your website which is wFh wfhresearch.com in the show notes thank you for your time and your research I've really enjoyed this and the best of luck in the future Hey, great thanks so much Ron five on.